Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. This morning I'd like to begin a 15-week study in this book of Philippians. This will take us through the end of January. And uh, we'll follow up this series with a series from the book of Exodus. In order to get an overview of this letter, we want to answer five questions so that we can put it in a historical and cultural context. Number one, who wrote it? Number two, to whom was it written? Number three, when was it written? Number four, why was it written? And then finally, what can we learn from it? All right, so number one, who wrote it? It's pretty uh, obvious if you know anything about the epistles in the New Testament that this is written by Paul. And uh, we can see that in the first verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. In those days, they would start off the letters with the, the writer, the author of the letter, and then right after that, they would give the recipients, which we're going to look at here in just a second. But I want you to see that this is from Paul, and he also includes Timothy. But he's saying that Timothy is here with me as I'm writing it, I think is the point, because look at verse 3. It seems to be that this is clearly from Paul himself. Verse 3 reads, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So instead of saying, we thank our God, speaking of himself and Timothy, he speaks solely of himself. And then verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. I think we all understand and we're going to look here um, in, in, a sh- in a little while, that Paul was the one who was in prison, not Timothy. And so throughout this letter, he's going to talk about his imprisonment, and he's going to speak primarily in the first person, singular, and so he's going to be referring to himself. And so Paul is the author of this letter. Who are the recipients? To whom did Paul write? Well, we see that in the second part of verse 1. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Believers are the ones to whom Paul is writing. Believers at the church in this city of Philippi. Turn to Acts chapter 16 and we'll see a little background of this city. Acts chapter 16. Philippi lies at the north end of the Aegean Sea. It's in modern-day Greece. And this city was the first city in the Macedonian area in which Paul planted a church. He did this around AD 50, and this was on his second missionary journey. And so here we get a little background beginning in verse 7, chapter 16, verse 7. And after they came to Mysia... They were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, including that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, come from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. 
And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. This is where, verses 14 and 15, where Lydia comes to Christ. She's one of these women that was meeting for prayer. She was a God-fearing uh, person, but was not a believer apparently. And the Lord, the Spirit opened her heart so that she would understand and respond. And then in verses 16 through 21, you remember that Paul cast out a demon of this young girl who was a fortune teller. And she was making her masters lots of money. But when she had the demon cast out of her, then uh, she was no longer able to tell fortunes. And so the masters were very upset and they dragged Paul and Silas to, to prison, to jail. And after they were beaten, they were put in a cell. And you remember, they were singing together. And it was about midnight when an earthquake took place and, and the jail doors were opened and their shackles came off. And the jailer knew that his life was over because he was going to allow these criminals to be, to be freed. And so he attempts suicide, but Paul and Silas stop him and they lead him and his family to Christ. Later that day, Paul and Silas are released. And that brings us to verse 40. Skip down to verse 40. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, this one who came to Christ in Philippi. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. This is the very beginning stages of a church, a work that is set up in the city of Philippi. Paul's going to move on from here and come back later. But, but for right now... This is the beginning. He's seeing people come to Christ and now they're gathering together with the brethren. That's the idea of believers. They're coming together to, to, um, to meet. And so this is, these are the recipients to whom Paul is writing. He's talking to believers that he had personal contact with, that he perhaps led many to Christ. And now they are meeting together in the city of Philippi. Now turn to chapter 28 of Acts. Because now the next question we want to answer is, when was this epistle to the Philippians written? When did Paul write this letter? So, AD 50 is when we, the, the events of chapter 14 just took place. We were just reading about where Paul comes into Philippi. That was AD 50. Now, 11 years later, notice where he's at in chapter 28, verse 16. When we entered Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And then skip down to verse 30. So he's under house arrest in the, the city of Rome. Verse 30, And he stayed, Paul, two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. So, what is taking place 11 years later Following these conversions that take place in the city of Philippi, Paul now is in a prison in Rome. And it's from this prison, it's really, he's under house arrest, but later he's probably going to be taken to some uh, guard, palace guard, to be awaiting his hearing before the emperor. But it's from this prison, this time his prison sentence, that he writes what we call the prison epistles. We've already studied one of them, it's Ephesians. Here's another one, Philippians. And then uh, Colossians is another one that he writes from Rome. And then Philemon is another. So he's writing this while he's, he's um, serving his sentence. 
And at the end of this house arrest, around A.D. 63, about 13 years after the church was planted, Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. Turn back to chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And I think that this is at the end of his prison sentence because he expects to come to them. Look at verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him, that is Timothy, immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. He's on trial here. He's about to see the emperor. Verse 24, And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Now, when he first arrived there in Rome, he wasn't sure that he was going to be able to get out anytime soon. But apparently this is towards the end. And we know from history that, that he was there for about three or four years. So Paul is writing to the church at Philippi around A.D. 63. And he writes this letter to the Philippians. And what the next question we want to answer is, why did Paul write this letter? What was the purpose of his writing? What is he trying to get across in this writing? What, what does he want the people to see? What does God want us to see in this letter? There are several reasons that Paul wrote this letter, but two primary ones. Number one, it is to thank the Philippian church for the gifts that they had sent. To thank the Philippians for the gifts they had sent. Turn to chapter 4, verse 10. Here's one of the reasons that Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. is a thank you letter. He wants to thank them for what they have done. Look at verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me." Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the Gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Can't you just hear Paul's uh, heart that just overflows with thanksgiving for these people who have gone out of their way to make sure that gifts make it to Paul? while he's in Thessalonica under much distress, and while he's in Rome serving his prison sentence. They even sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to do this. And so the first reason, the first primary reason that Paul writes this letter is to thank the Philippian church. The second reason is to encourage them in the progress of the Gospel. To encourage them in the progress of of the gospel, and this really seems to be the main point, the theme of the entire letter, that Christians find their greatest joy in the progress of the gospel. Christians find their greatest joy in the progress of the gospel. Paul wanted them to share the joy that he had 
in the progress of the Gospel. And he wanted to encourage them to continue in their progress of the Gospel. Now, when we think of the book of Philippians, we think of the word what? Anybody know? Joy, right? The, the word joy or rejoice is used uh, more frequently than in any other New Testament book. That is, compared to how many words are in the entire book, Philippians uses joy or rejoice the most. And this book is about joy. The words uh, joy and rejoice are used a total of 16 times in only 104 verses. But it's not simply just joy, just be joyful. It's joy because of something. It's a joy that I would suggest is married to the progress of the Gospel. The joy actually comes from, it's sourced in the progress of the Gospel. Notice the context. Let's just go through some of these examples. Some of the ways in which we see joy come. We, we talk about Paul being in prison, yet he's still joyful. And that's what this book is about. And yes, he is joyful, but it's, about, it's because of something. Here's the first instance of joy. Chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. So, what is Paul praising God for? Notice the next verse, verse 5. In view of your participation in the Gospel from the first day until now. Why is he praising God? Why is he filled with joy? It's because the Philippians are participating in the progress of the Gospel. The second time he uses it is in verse 18. And notice why. He says rejoice. Yes, I do rejoice. Verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And there I think he's talking about his eternal deliverance, his eternal salvation. So what he's talking about in the verses preceding his mentioning of rejoicing, is he's talking about their participation in the Gospel that, that Christ is being proclaimed. And so he rejoices. Yes, and he will rejoice, he says, because he will be delivered by God finally. He's talking about the progress of the Gospel. Verse 25 is the next occurrence of joy. And notice what it's centered on. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. This is not an isolated uh, uh, joy that's just kind of divorced from all, uh, all spiritual things. This is a joy that comes because of His knowledge and participation of in the Gospel. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete. complete. How? How can they make His joy complete? Well, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. What is this talking about? It's talking about Christians growing in their knowledge and their love for God and their godliness. It's about the Gospel taking root. Not just transforming them at salvation, but actually changing them, progressing them in the faith. Paul takes joy in that. Make my joy complete by growing as Christians, is what he's saying. Paul uses joy and rejoice four times in verses 17 and 18. Chapter 2. Four times. And what is he talking about there? Verse 17, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, 
I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the progress of the Gospel that I have been poured out for the sake of the Gospel. And so I take joy in this. I rejoice in it. That I'm being used for the progress of the Gospel. And here's what I want for you. I want you to take joy in that too. In chapter 2, verses 28-30, through Paul wants them to be joyful about Epaphroditus who is a partner in the Gospel. In 3.1, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord. And then he instructs them in how to live worthy of the Gospel. Notice what Paul calls the church in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. They, he loves these people because of their progress in the Gospel, because of the connection that he has with them and, and what they're doing for the sake of Christ. Perhaps the most familiar Reference to joy is found in verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So sometimes we take this verse and we just use it for any part of life. But what Paul is talking about primarily, according to verses 5-7, through is that this joy, the reason that you can rejoice, is because of the progress of the Gospel. As it is shaping people as it's changing our lives. Finally, in verse 10 of chapter 4, Paul rejoices that they were willing to share with him. We've already read that passage. It testifies to the progress of the Gospel that it's actually transforming them to the, effect, to the point where they're actually reaching out to other people like Paul so that the Gospel can continue to be spread. So for Paul and the Philippian church, joy comes from the progress of the Gospel. And so our greatest joy as Christians should be the same thing, in the same place. It should be from the progress of the Gospel. Remember Third John. John says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are doing what? Are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy... My joy comes from... He doesn't say, I just take some joy in it. My greatest joy in life is to know that my children... He's talking about believers that he's, he's led and, and um, has, has preached to and so on. That they are walking in the truth. That's my greatest joy, he says. Luke 15.7 says, there is more, Jesus said, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who does what? who repents than 99 who need no repentance. The greatest joy that there is in heaven is when the Gospel is progressing, when sinners are being saved. John 15, 10-11, If you keep My commandments, Jesus said, you will abide in My love just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says the way that you can have joy and that it will be full is as you are are uniting yourself with Me, as you are keeping My commandments, as you are progressing in the Gospel. 1 Peter 1, 6-9 In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials 
So here, Peter's talking about having joy, rejoicing in a situation, even when we're going through trials. And he's saying, why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why can we have joy, according to Peter, in the middle of trials? It's because we know that the outcome of these trials is greater faith on our part, and this greater faith, this progress of the Gospel, results in praise and glory to God. Our greatest joy as Christians should come from the progress of the Gospel. We must pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel. Let me show you how this plays itself out in the book, and then we'll answer the question, what can we learn from Paul's letter? How does this play itself out in the book? And and I lean heavily on Dr. Carson's work, his study of this book. Number one, we must pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel by uh, by putting it first in our lives. By putting the Gospel first in our lives. Chapter 1. Notice what Paul wants to see in the Philippian believers. Verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's no talk there from Paul about being free from pain, being free from trials, having a a big house, a great job, lots of money. There's nothing in there about that. Instead, he says that, that my desire for you is that you would grow in your love and in your discernment. We pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel by putting the Gospel first in our lives. Paul wants this Gospel to advance in his imprisonment. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel so that, my, that, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. See what Paul's concerned with here? He's not concerned with his own personal well-being, that he can just be free from these chains, so to speak, that he can get out from under the oppression of these Romans who uh, really it's because of the Jews put him there, but, but now he's going to appeal to Caesar and he's not talking about that. That's not his primary concern. His primary concern is that people are progressing in the Gospel, that the Word of God is being preached and that Christians are growing up in their faith. He puts the Gospel first and that's where we're going to find our joy as Christians. Although to die is gain, Paul finds joy in living. Look at verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which way to choose. Look at verse 24. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. See what Paul's doing here? 
saying, you know, it would actually be far better for me. It would be more comfortable for me if I died and went on to be with Christ. It would be a gain. To live is, is Christ, but, but to die is gain because then I can see Him face to face and it actually would be far better. Have you ever gone through a trial? You felt so low. You, you, you wished for, you, 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 you longed for the time when you could see your Savior and this trial could be over. This is Paul. And yet, what is his greatest concern here? Not, that, not for his own personal comfort. You know what? I, I'd rather just go on and do it. He said, no, for your sake, I want to see the joy of Christ grow up in you as you, you grow in the progress of the Gospel. My, love, my life, Paul says, is lived for the progress of the Gospel. And I want to see your life lived in that same way. So if Christ keeps me on and allows me to go through these trials in deep and hard ways, and I will do it for the sake of my progress in the Gospel and in, for the sake of your progress in the Gospel. So we pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel by putting the Gospel first, chapter 1. Chapter 2, we pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel by focusing on the cross. We pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel by focusing on the cross. That's what this whole passage is about Christ. We follow His example. We have, to, we have to be humble like Christ is humble. He humbled Himself for the sake of the Gospel. Notice verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man. Chapter 2, verse 8. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are to follow Christ's example. The way that we take joy in the progress of the Gospel is by focusing on the cross. Focusing on what Christ did. Notice verse 12, because we see here that because of His example, we should progress in the Gospel ourselves. So then, verse 12, My beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in My presence only, but now much more in My absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to, to work for His good pleasure. The way that we pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel is by focusing on the cross. We focus on what Christ did for us and in so doing we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because God is working within us. Number three, we pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel by emulating Christian leaders. We emulate Christian leaders. This is primarily in chapter 3 but it's also at the end of Chapter 2. Why is it that Paul sent Epaphroditus back to the Philippians in the first place? Look at chapter 2, verse 28. Therefore I have sent him, Epaphroditus, all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. The Philippians had come to love this man, Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus apparently 
is the one who is the, the transporter of these gifts to Paul. In return, Paul sends a letter and Epaphroditus because Epaphroditus uh, was in very bad health and the Philippians were starting to get worried about him. And so Paul sends him back and says, I'm sending to him, but I want you to emulate him. He's a man of faith. He, he's an honorable Christian leader. And so you will find joy in the progress of the Gospel as you follow his example. Notice why Paul sent Timothy in verse 19. But I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly so that also that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of His proven worth, that He served with me in the furtherance of the Gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send Him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. Why did Paul send Timothy back to the Philippians? So that he could see their progress. So that, so that Timothy could take an assessment of how the Philippians were doing and so that Paul could be encouraged by their progress of the Gospel. So that he could give praise to God. And then, then why did Paul intend to come himself? He sent Epaphroditus so that they would emulate him in the progress of the Gospel. They, he sent Timothy so that they would emulate Timothy in his desire to see the Gospel progress. And then Paul intends to come himself. Look at verse 24. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. And then skip down to chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Paul intended to come to them because he wanted to encourage them in their progress of the Gospel. And so they would do well to emulate his desire to see that Gospel spread. So we pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel by putting it first in our lives. We pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel by focusing on the cross. Three, we pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel by emulating worthy leaders. And then number four, chapter four. We pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel by never giving up in the Christian walk. We pursue joy in the progress of the Gospel by never giving up in the Christian walk. What we're going to see here in chapter 4 is that the needs that God will supply, the very famous verse, verse 19, that God, my God will supply all your needs, are in keeping with God's desire to advance the Gospel. That God gives his people, what they need in order to advance the Gospel. So, as a whole, this letter served the church by encouraging them to continue to be steadfast in their Christian walk and to pursue joy through the progress of the Gospel as God 
use the gospel to shape their lives and to give them eyes to see the need for them to use their influence on others to advance the gospel. It was an encouragement to them. We must pursue joy through the progress of the gospel. So I think that's why Paul wrote this letter. Final question we want to answer this morning is what can we learn from Paul's letter? What can we learn from Paul's letter? We can find joy in lots of things, but our joy will not be satisfied in things necessarily. There is no greater joy, John says, than to know that my children are walking in the truth. There's no greater joy, I would say, for all of us than to be a part of the progress of the Gospel. Jesus came, John 15, so that your joy would be full through the cross and through the progress of the Gospel. So let me give you six points of application that we can learn from our study this morning. Six points of application. What we can learn from Paul's letter. Number one, get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off yourself and your circumstances. If if anyone would have the right, would be justified in thinking about himself and his circumstances and commiserating over his difficult life as a Christian, it would be Paul. But what do we find Paul doing? Not concerned about his individual problems and individual inconveniences. No, Paul's concerned about the advance of the Gospel. We spend so much of our time dwelling on on our own little lives and the annoyances that fill up our day and the people who let us down. But we need to stop putting our interests, our thoughts on on the things of of this life, of our little lives. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves and off of our circumstances because we will be distressed. We will be carried down and weighted down with the load that we bear. And that's because we're seeking our joy in ourselves and in our circumstances. And so when our circumstances don't meet up to our expectations, when people around us fail us because our our joy was being found in them, then we have no joy. We lack joy. But if our joy is in the progress of the Gospel, that God's using these difficult things in our lives and the lives of others, to advance His name, to make His name known, to, to weed out those who are sinful, to, to, uh, to advance us in our godliness, then we can have joy in that no matter what the circumstances. Do you see? Get your eyes off of yourself. Number two, get your eyes on the Gospel. Get your eyes on the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Even Christ Himself did not focus on Himself. If He did, He would not have gone to the cross. But instead, He focused on the advance of the Gospel. He had focused on what He could do for the sake of God's glory throughout the world. That's what chapter 2 is all about. We take, in, we take our example from Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, or yeah, I think it's chapter 12, says, says that we need to, to run the race before us, setting aside the weights that so easily beset us. And look unto Jesus. Look at His example. He's the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him endured all the trials, right? He endured the cross. 
despising the shame. He didn't think about the shame that was coming upon him. Instead, he thought about what was beyond him. That is the glory of God through the progress of the Gospel. Friends, we need to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the Gospel of Jesus Christ. What in the world is God doing to advance the Gospel in our world? And, and, and when I say our world, I mean our little environment in which we live. What is God doing to advance the Gospel? Get your eyes off of yourself and onto the Gospel. Number three, Get your eyes on the progress of the Gospel in your own Christian life. Get your eyes on the progress of the Gospel in your own Christian life. Chapter 4 is full of exhortations on how we need to be pursuing in our lives uh, the Gospel. And we do this through simple obedience. And when we do this, we are advancing the Gospel in our own lives. The Gospel was never intended to just save you from hell, was it? It was designed to save you from hell and to change you. To make you equipped to be in heaven. To be a citizen of heaven. When you come to Christ, you're far from there. I'm far from there. Praise God that He uses the Gospel to continually change us. To be more like Jesus Christ through obedience. So get your eyes... How can you progress the Gospel in your own Christian life? What is it that you need to take the next step of obedience in? What is it that you're holding back from God right now? If your joy is in the progress of the Gospel, you will be concerned about the progress of the Gospel in your own Christian life. Number four, get your eyes on the progress of the Gospel in the lives of other believers in our church. On the progress of the Gospel in the lives of other believers in our church. Now, if we all we did was cared about our own progress of the Gospel, our own individual advancement in the truth and obedience, then we've missed the point. Because our obedience is designed to uh, encourage other people and we're, we're designed to be a part of a community. So what kind of things can we do to, to advance the Gospel in our church? What kind of things can we specifically do to advance the Gospel in our church? And by advancing the Gospel... I'm not primarily talking about witnessing to unbelievers, although we're going to get there. Paul's concern was with their growth in godliness. He was primarily concerned that they as a whole, the Philippians as a whole, would grow in their relationship with Christ. And so my question to you is, what can you do to help advance the gospel in this church? What kind of things can you do to be an encouragement to other believers so that the Gospel would be advanced in their lives? Get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes on the Gospel and its progression in your life and in the life of our church. And then number five, get your, lives, get your eyes on the progress of the Gospel in the lives of believers around our area and around the world. Sometimes what we can do as Christians, as we can just focus on our little environment in which we see and, and interact. But we miss the fact that God is doing great things in other churches in our areas and our area, and that He's doing great things in churches around the world. So what can we do to partner up with these churches in order to advance the gospel in them? What can we do to be an encouragement to them? Help them grow in their progress of the gospel. 
How can we partner with other churches around the world to encourage them in their faith? To help them see that they're not alone in this battle. Is it just enough for us to send a check to a missions agency that forwards some money on to a certain missionary? Or is there something more that we can do to help encourage people around the world who are working to progress the gospel? Is there something specific that we can do? And then number number six. Get your eyes on the progress of the gospel in the lives of unbelievers. In the lives of unbelievers. And I would say in our area and the world and around the world. What can we do to see the progress of the gospel reach? See the gospel reach unbelievers in our area? What can we do as a church to help encourage people about their need to be saved? Help remind them and exhort them and challenge them that they have been blinded to the truth and that they need to come and repent. What can we do to encourage people around the world to bow the knee in this lifetime before it's too late? Because there will be a time, Philippians 2, that every knee will bow. But sadly, the unbelievers who will be bowing at that time will not be bowing because they want to. They'll be bowing because they have to. What can we do to get them to bow the knee now? How can we see the progress of the Gospel go forward through our church, through our ministry, through our interaction with unbelievers that we already know? And how can we do this around the world? Paul's letter teaches us that our greatest joy is in the progress of the Gospel. And so we need to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto what God is doing as He advances the Gospel in our lives, in our church, in our area, and around the world. And... uh, I'm looking forward to studying this in more uh, detail as uh, over the next 14 times it will, that I'll be preaching in the morning. And uh, so I would encourage you to keep up with the, the schedule that we're, we're looking at. I, I put that in the, uh, the quarterly schedule so that you can be reflecting on the verses that we're going to be pre- uh, studying each, each Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus took great joy in the progress of the Gospel, seeing it go beyond the Jews and to the farthest corners of the world. And we praise You that it has reached us. We are part of that uttermost parts of the earth. And we praise You that there were people in our lives that were so concerned about the progress of the Gospel that that they joyfully gave it to us. And we want to honor You with our lives and our resources. So help us to think wisely about how we use our time, how we pray, how we give. Use what we have, our lives, so that the Gospel would progress in the lives of believers here in this church, in the lives of the believers in churches in our area, in the lives of believers around the world, and then as the Gospel progresses to unbelievers who need to hear and respond to the truth of the Gospel. Lord, help us in this, we pray. May You give us clear ways in which we can advance the Gospel and we pray that the result would be a great joy and that that joy would fuel greater service to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.